Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. More than 100 inmates at the St. Louis City Justice Center took over two units of the jail early Saturday morning, shattering fourth floor windows and setting small fires as they called out jubilantly to a crowd of supporters who gathered on the street below. The uprising began at about 2.30 a.m., reportedly beginning with an altercation between an officer and one prisoner. Other detainees jumped in and soon overran the unit as the bruised officer escaped. Multiple inmates were able to jimmy the locks on their cells to join the group. Authorities said that 117 people participated, most of whom masked using strips of cloth. Family members and others called to loved ones from the street below, with people calling out to their brothers and dancing with joy. Prisoners set a number of small fires before being overwhelmed with tear gas and pepper spray. Men in a second unit, also on the fourth floor, also let themselves out of their cell at about the same time, forced their way into adjoining hallways but never took control of the floor itself, remaining separated on the west and east side of the building. On both sides, the men smashed windows and launched whatever they could through the broken glass. Plastic stools, digital monitors, packets of ramen, an entire elliptical machine, a filing cabinet, chairs, along with other debris. The St. Louis Justice Center is one of two jails in the city, alongside the more infamous Workhouse. The Workhouse is known for its terrifying conditions and lack of basic resources. In 2017, its extreme summer temperatures and lack of air conditioning triggered prisoner protests and as well as serious combative solidarity protests by outside supporters. In the years since, there has been a growing consensus to close the workhouse. Politicians in the St. Louis Police Union are now trying to pit prisoners in the two facilities against each other, arguing that the revolt in the Justice Center, which is in the middle of downtown, means that the far more isolated workhouse should be kept open. The St. Louis Police Officers Association tweeted in response to this weekend's revolt that it almost makes citizens wish that there was a manageable, more spacious, secure, standalone jail facility away from the downtown business center where we could house riotous prisoners. Oh wait, the police seem to regret the visibility achieved by the prisoners' fourth-floor protest and the relative safety that this created for the protesters. At the William E. Donaldson Correctional Facility in Jefferson County, guards attacked and choked an elderly incarcerated man, Cat Diamond, in the cafeteria under the reportedly false pretense that he had gotten in line for a second meal. A couple of days later, Robert Earl Council, an incarcerated organizer who is also known as Kinetic Justice, asked a correctional officer about the beating. In response, 
officers liberally maced the area. Officers then beat Ethan Moore, a black man who had previously filed a lawsuit against a guard. He was beaten with a meat cleaver, splitting his skull open. Four to five guards stomped Moore while he was unconscious, and then again once he was handcuffed in a wheelchair. His injuries include an orbital and nose fracture, a broken jaw, and two broken hands. He has at least 10 staples in his head. Witnesses say officers then descended on Kinetic Justice, the well-respected organizer and whistleblower, and beat him with metal batons as he lay on the ground. After the attack, at least two other incarcerated people, Wilbert Smith and Detrell Shaw, were badly battered while the prison was on lockdown. Kinetic Justice and Moore were airlifted to the trauma center at UAB Hospital in Birmingham. A protest emerged at the hospital, demanding that the officials allow Kinetic Justice's family in to see him. This demand remains unmet. Moore underwent surgery, while Smith and Shaw's conditions are unknown. Moore and Kinetic Justice have been moved to the Kilby Infirmary, where they reportedly are not receiving basic medical care or ice for their wounds. In a press release, the Alabama Department of Corrections, ADOC, said it called on the FBI to assist in an investigation and claimed that both guards and incarcerated people sustained injuries. Donaldson is a facility with a well-documented history of negligence leading to the violent deaths of prisoners. In October 2019, prison guards at that facility beat 35-year-old Stephen Davis to death. In June of last year, guards at Donaldson used Cellbuster, a potent chemical agent, on Darnell McMillian's cell while he was on suicide watch. An employee said Darnell yelled that he couldn't breathe. He died shortly after. In addition to this, Tommy Lee Rutledge, a man who struggled with mental health issues and spent a majority of the last several decades in solitary confinement, died from hypothermia in an overheated cell on December 7th, when his core body temperature rose to 109 degrees. This most recent round of beatings follows a lawsuit filed by the Department of Justice against the ADOC on December 9th. The DOJ wrote that Alabama, quote, fails to provide adequate protection from prisoner-on-prisoner -prisoner violence and prisoner-on-prisoner -prisoner sex abuse, fails to provide safe and sanitary conditions, and subjects prisoners to excessive force at the hands of prison staff. Alabama's solution is to spend an estimated $3 billion on two new megaton prisons, a move solidified on February 1st, when Governor Kay Ivey signed two 30-year leasing contracts with private prison company, CoreCivic. On Saturday, correction officers at Inverness Jail in Portland, Oregon, removed an inmate from Dorm 11 and put the dorm into medical lockdown a jail protocol for when it believes a dorm has been exposed to COVID-19. On Sunday, several men in dorm 11 had asked correction officers why their dorm had been placed under lockdown and requested COVID-19 tests for the dorm. Officers ignored their requests. On Sunday evening, after one inmate asked officers to speak with a surgeon, 
about receiving a test, an officer threatened to send him to solitary confinement. When the man continued to request a test, two officers approached the man's bed, threw him on the ground, and handcuffed him. Then, an officer used a taser on the man's lower back. Others in the dorm yelled at the officer to stop tasing the man, but he did not. That's when inmates reportedly began throwing chairs at the cluster of officers who had surrounded the man on the ground. When people began throwing their chairs, officers started pepper spraying everyone in the dorm regardless of whether or not they were involved in the protest. When officers took the handcuffed man out of the dorm, inmates used chairs to barricade the doors behind them, effectively shutting officers out of their office. The entire incident was reportedly unplanned and was only in response to how officers treated their friend. When the CERT team entered the dorm around 2.30 a.m. on Monday, the dorm 11 inmates were handcuffed and moved into small holding cells in groups of seven. And now we have a brief update on coronavirus conditions in California. Today, we spoke with Emily Mushakor in Corcoran about how protocol is changing for prisoners in his facility. Well, since COVID-19, it's put a damper on a lot of our programming. I mean, we were locked in our cells for the longest. Uh, a few, well, when it first started, a few people were hospitalized. Um, people were really sick. And the word that I heard was people was getting like, they felt like they had the flu. They had the chills, their bones hurt. Um, and it kind of changed the culture in prison because we realized that it was the CO's. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. We realized that the only way it was coming in was through free staff and CO's. So when they started letting some of us program who weren't positive, you know, it really wasn't a program because it was like only half of your tier going to the yard and coming to the day room, which is the way it still is today. But uh, since that first started, we've been getting tested regularly. We've been on and off quarantine, which, you know, is considered a lockdown. COs are now starting to get tested, and we have to file 602 to get that done. But no fatality that I know of. People have been really sick when it first happened. Now, not so much. And I think the reason why they, they, they first was moving people around a lot to the different yards, they stopped doing that because it was continuing to spread. And now it's more or less like uh, a controlled situation where – they're doing what they can to stop us from catching it. And we're doing what, what we can, staying clean, staying healthy, keeping six feet, wearing masks. We're doing what we can so that we don't catch it. But, uh, you know, it's still going on. Now they got the vaccine here, and they've implemented it twice this, this month already. Um, people names come up on a list who might be high-risk medical uh, or 65 and older, and they're getting the vaccines first. Anybody that's had the virus, they're like at the the end of the of the list but it's you know it's it's not really an eerie surreal type feeling it's like whatever you know because now we're i guess we're like getting used to it we're more worried about our loved ones out there because we can't see them and when we're on lockdown we can't use the phone so we can't talk to them so what they have done is provided um video visits so now we can get a visit once a month from one of our loved ones who are already approved and if they give us these tablets, which they, which they say they're going to do in a couple of months, then we'll be able to have our own uh, visits on our tablets like twice or once a week or twice a month, something like that. I'm not too sure. But it seems like 
because of our proactive abilities to file these grievances collectively and go all the way to Sacramento and not settle for nothing until we get our grievances met. It seems like now the administration wants to give in and um, accommodate us with programming the best way they can because, like I was saying, they're not stopping the virus because I guess you can, but we're going to be make sure that we're healthy and, and care about ourselves. They're not going to do that. You know, they're going to do what they've been doing, you know, and, and use that as an excuse to stop giving us programs. So once we see those dynamics and start challenging those conditions, things are starting to feel a little bit better. And like I said, nobody's really getting sick. They're just getting positive tests. So it, it's, uh, it, like I said, it feels a little bit better now. Last, I'd say by the, within the last 30 days, it's been feeling a little bit better. When um, this next building is supposed to come on quarantine today, it'll be the first time all buildings on the yard were up and running within the last six months. So I'm looking for a positive change to keep continuing to come. We'll hear more from Emily Moo in next week's episode. And now, for this week, we finish a conversation between Dr. Jeffrey Ian Ross and Dr. Nicole Siegel. Ross is a professor at the University of Baltimore and has researched, written, and lectured primarily on policing, political crime, state crime, and crimes of the powerful for over two decades. Last week, they discussed the concept of convict criminology. Convict criminology is a study of crime and prisons by ex-convict academics and associated critical and radical scholars. Now, they finish up by discussing police violence and excessive use of force and the concept of state crime and its difference from state violence. The other arena I wanted to ask you about, the other part of your own writing, is some of your work on state crime. Could you start by giving us a definition? What is state crime? And telling us why you think it's so important to consider? I'm a political scientist by training and a criminologist by default. And default means that uh, a considerable amount of my research uh, happens to be in the field of criminology. And state crime is really a great marriage of the two fields. A lot of my early scholarship in the field of political science was on terrorism. Terrorism against a state. And that's oppositional violence. But at some point in time, very early on, I realized that there was more violence committed by the state than violence committed against the state. And the state is more powerful, regardless of which country you're talking about. That assisted in my trajectory to looking at police use of excessive force. Uh, State crime includes such things as corruption, uh, political assassinations, Uh, human rights violations, those sorts of things to begin with to sort of scratch the surface. On the part of any level of government? On the part of any level of government. So, well, uh, then we can go even further and we can be, you know, police officer use of excessive force, correctional officers engaging in violence, human rights violations, uh, civil rights violations, those sorts of things can also be uh, state crimes. Uh, so there's multiple opportunities for the state to engage in, in crimes, you know, violation of election laws, all, all that sort of thing. Over the last five, 10 years, myself and a cohort of people who have been working in the field of state crime have kind of realized that really we should be looking at this question of state crime in a bigger, through a bigger lens. And, and many of us are now working at, on what's known as crimes of the powerful. So it's not just simply the state as, the, as a principal actor of committing crimes, but you know, corporations, 
religious organizations, large religious organizations that are or have engaged in major crimes against citizens and communities. And there's often a linkage between the state, sometimes religious organizations and corporations. And so many of us think that that's the the lens should just subtly shift to, to this wider perspective. And a handful of us are writing in this area and doing the best we can. So that's kind of where my scholarship is there. And so, you know, I, I, when I look at prisons, a lot of the times I'm looking at uh, prisons, the kinds of uh, wrongs they do, the kind of abuse, the kind of deviance and the kind of crimes that may happen behind bars or on behalf of a prison. Are there any forms of state violence that you would not include in the category of state crime? I don't think so, to be honest with you. I might say that I, I might not study it as much just mm-hmm. because this requires a lot of resources and there's yeah. only 24 hours of, in the day. Do you think there's a relationship to capitalism that you want to try to tease out when you're thinking about state crime? Is you know, If you're talking about crimes of the powerful, are you also talking about the major institutions of capitalism, which are often deeply intertwined with the state? Sure. You know, capitalism has to be part of that whole equation. You know, power is not simply just capital. Uh, It can also be things like people's careers, people's perceptions of uh, authority, um, that sort of thing. You wrote your dissertation on this question of the relationship between police violence or police excessive use of force, police brutality, and so on, and the question of state crime. What, What is the relationship between state crime and police crime? What's the relationship between police use of excessive force and state crime? Is that right? Yeah. You know, I, I guess I okay. I said police crime to kind of group some police of the, crime. Yeah. The police brutality, excessive use of force, police killing people, you know. Yeah. Well, the state is in a position where it can enable uh, police uh, deviance, police crime. Um, and we have seen multiple times. And in bold relief over the past decade or two, numerous cases where uh, young, unarmed African-American males who have been shot by police officers, I mean, charges have been brought against these individuals, uh, but through uh, certain technicalities, uh, the officer was found not guilty. And it seemed And in some cases, uh, the state has enabled these kinds of procedures. And then we've seen also, too, where the officer may not have been found guilty of a criminal charge, but uh, when it comes time for a a civil charge, uh, there may be justice may be achieved. So another factor to put into this whole equation is definitely um, the notion of justice uh, Mm -hmm. is justice. Uh, meted out. Uh, And it's often, you know, private parties have to seek uh, remediation that way. So seems that um, um, maybe one definitionally necessary part of state crime is that it can basically never be recognized as crime. hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I follow you. Well, because the state um, in the abstract form makes the laws, gets to decide what is legitimate practice and monopolizes the practice of violence. So, uh, or monopolizes legitimate violence. And therefore, if there is violence being distributed by agents of the state, the state gets to say, oh, no, no, that doesn't count as crime. That might be a a less than perfect practice, 
but it certainly isn't something that goes against the law, particularly if it's something that happens frequently. Right, um, I, I know what you're saying. So, um, so this, this goes back to a long-standing debate, and I would say that it's almost solved in the field of criminology. One of the foundational challenges in the field of criminology is what is a crime? What is a crime has been uh, almost anything that's deviant or deviance that rises to a level in which it becomes codified. There's a law that's passed. Okay. So we may have an action uh, in one country uh, that's a crime and in another country, it's not a crime. Okay. It may be simply de a deviant action. But in the country where it's against the law, it's risen to the level of being a recognized, bona fide uh, violation of, of an existing criminal code. Then we've moved during the 1960s, 1970s, a number of critical criminologists, radical and critical criminologists, uh, said, hey, listen, this definition is too limited. Why? Is because we know who makes the laws. The people who make the laws are, generally speaking, well, legislators. And who are legislators? Uh, although there's a presumption that they represent, you know, the people who elected them, we also know that in some polities, like the United States, they, they reflect uh, not everybody in, in their jurisdiction voted for them. And they're often, if you just do the, uh, the demographics, they're disproportionate people who are wealthy. The people who run for office and often win are successful not only in winning uh, the plurality of votes, but also convincing people who have money to help fund their campaigns. And we know that a, a political campaign is quite expensive in, in this country and in many countries, in particular, you know, countries where there's a lot of money that goes into politics. And so uh, we know that they're not going to represent necessarily the will of the people. They're going to represent uh, the desires of the people who are most powerful and are more most wealthy. Okay. So that's why during the 1960s and 70s, uh, radical criminologists, which morphed into critical criminologists, said, uh, wait a minute, the crimes that are on the books uh, are, are not necessarily uh, the only kinds of things we should look at, that we should examine. We also don't want to be told by the state what we should be looking at in terms of our you know, research agendas. So we are going to expand what we look at to include things like civil rights violations and human rights violations, which are not criminal kinds of violations. And so that's why or gave way to things like, you know, the study of uh, state crime, gave way to concepts uh, of social harm, looking at social harm as being a more encompassing kind of uh, term and process. So I, I think that all sort of is a framework, though expressed not that articulately by me, uh, of what state crime can be looking at. So it's a more encompassing kind of uh, examination of violations by the state. Are there things that you think would be important to say about convict criminology or important to say to the audience of KiteLine, which includes um, lots of folks in prison and lots of activists and co-conspirators? We certainly covered quite a bit about convict criminology. And uh, I, I do want to say the following, uh, which I'm not sure uh, came out as clearly as I may have wanted, is that convict criminology has three main pillars, and that is research or scholarly research, number two, uh, mentorship, and number three, activism and or engaging in public policy debates. And so people who are in the convict criminology network try to contribute in their own way 
to these three pillars. And some of us do more of one thing than the others. So when it comes to time for scholarship, it can also serve uh, in a mentoring kind of role. So we will try to publish with each other. We will try to mentor junior scholars so that they can have a, a vita that would enable them to secure a position at a university, a instructor position or a tenure track position, that sort of thing. We will write letters of recommendation for them. Uh, we will help them craft their letters of application. We'll negotiate, not negotiate, we will help them navigate the rough waters of academia from you know, applying for jobs and departmental politics and for going up for promotion, that sort of thing. And in terms of activism, uh, we have put forward uh, numerous kinds of uh, statements as, as, an, as a group. And now, now, uh, now that we are an official division of the uh, American Society of Criminology, that enables us to do that with a little bit more legitimacy. We also uh, do lots of news media uh, work where we can and participate in different debates. And so it is a very fluid kind of organization and very accepting organization. And so uh, we frequently get uh, emails uh, or letters from individuals who are behind bars, and we do our best to assist them, uh, help them negotiate the rough waters uh, that they experience behind bars and uh, upon reentry. I mean, just recently, within the last 24 hours, uh, I got an email from an individual who I had met while I was giving a series of talks at a uh, handful of FBOP prisons. He uh, reached out to me, said he was released in the spring, asked me about appropriate uh, university courses that he may uh, might be able to take, uh, what, how he can navigate you know, the grants and all that sort of thing. And uh, because of the network, uh, the, the day after I got an email from a colleague who is assembling a university class where there's free tuition for uh, returning citizens. So I put the two of them together. And so there's that kind of synergy that a lot of the people in our uh, organization engage in. Uh, what happens, I'm sure this happens to many prison activists, is many letters, many contacts, I see them as cries for help. And I don't mean that in a demeaning sense. I mean, these are people who have often exhausted all possibilities and they really need uh, our help, people who can assist them in, in, in navigating the rough waters. And so if I can lend a help, helping hand, if other people in that network can lend a helping hand and if it's of minimal cost, I, I say, why not? And that's what we try to do. Thank you so much, Dr. Ross. It's a great pleasure to talk to you and Thank you for the work you do in the world and for changing the field of ideas, for changing the world of ideas by insisting that people who are formerly incarcerated must be in scholarly conversations. That's an absolutely essential intervention, and that's a great project to devote one's life to. Thank you. You can reach Dr. Ross via his website, jeffreyianross.com. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. 
You can call in on behalf of a loved one, or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.org. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.